You're listening to B2B Nation, a podcast from Technology Advice designed to help marketers navigate the modern B2B buyer's journey. Here's your host, Mike Pastor. When you create business content, you think about how it's going to activate people's memories so that one day or one week later, they recall your message and your product. Do you think about the science of storytelling so your audience creates associations with your message? You might not, because you're not a neuroscientist who studies these things. And you probably don't have a lot of time to consult with one either. But don't worry, B2B Nation, we got you covered. I'm Mike Pastor from Technology Advice, and in this episode, we're going to talk to Dr. Carmen Simon, Chief Science Officer at Corporate Visions and the author of Impossible to Ignore, Creating Memorable Content to Influence Decisions. We're going to talk about creating effective presentations, storytelling for business, and how you can create content that activates the memory of your audience. Have a listen. Dr. Carmen Simon, welcome to B2B Nation. Why don't you take a minute and tell us who you are and what it is you do? Thank you for inviting me and uh, welcome everyone. I am uh, Carmen Simon. I'm a cognitive neuroscientist and the uh, chief science officer at uh, Corporate Visions. In uh, my job, I conduct a lot of research studies on the brains. Uh, I have um, a healthy passion for brains. <laughs> and. An outstanding opportunity because especially at a time like this when the world seems to be hiding, I am very humbled by how many people still volunteer face-to-face for our neuroscience research studies. And when I say neuroscience research studies, the ones that we do include EEG technology. Have you seen those caps or headsets that sit on people's scalps? Yep. And the electrodes that we place there. I actually have one here at my desk. <laughs> the that we place on the scalp, we get to record the signal that gets generated in reaction to stimulation. And that stimulation might be a business presentation, a video, a website, anything that's important to corporate clients. We also use ECG, that's an electrocardiogram. So that just simply monitors your heart rate. We also use GSR, that's a device that sits around your fingers and on your wrist. And it's a galvanic skin response. So we monitor the uh, skin conductivity, which changes or should change when you show your, uh, your clients corporate content. So we use a variety of a uh, suite of, uh, of tools that get to monitor the psychological and physiological reaction that the business brain has to business content. So, so let's talk about memory. Let's start at memory because we, as a content creator, you create content, you put it out there and there's a whole bunch of stuff, you know, how do we... What format do we create it in? How do we distribute it? Through which channels do we distribute it? You get it in front of a reader. You hope they have the time to read it or watch it, and they do so. But then if you go back a few days later, did any of it stick? So at a high level, what are some of the things that trigger audiences to remember the content that they see, hear, or read? You're asking the question in an interesting way, and I like the way that you're positioning it because... Your question is what triggers memories, which means that you're already later on at point B when you, the communicator, you're no longer in the room and you may be humbled enough to recognize that people don't just sit around their desks recollecting things. Some things in their environment might be triggering some memories or some of their internal states might trigger some of their memories. So if we're asking that question from that regard, it's a, it's a good start because 
then we can think, are there some elements that will always be around that will remind people of something that's important? Like right here at my desk, I have this little jelly that I bought at a place here in San Francisco. And it's from some Swiss kind of place. I don't know what are these are lethal, by the way. You want to eat one or then you want to eat 12. And uh, every time I see it, it reminds me of, um, of uh, Switzerland. So there's a physical object that then takes me in my mind somewhere else. So from a business perspective and a practical point of view, it's good to ask, what can I build in people's environments that when I'm no longer in the room, it can trigger a memory that, um, that's important. Sometimes that's easy to, uh, to grasp, sometimes it's not. But from a practical perspective, let's think of memory this way and memory formation, first of all. There is this notion that um, people must understand, which is called spreading activation, meaning that the moment that I show you one object and one concept, then that can activate something else that is related to it and that can activate something else. So I might go from jellies to Switzerland, to cheese, to chocolate. So you see how all those concepts are interconnected in a network and in a, this network has various nodes. So once one concept gets activated, then another gets activated and another gets activated after that. And the practical implication for all of us in business content is this. The moment that you have created something, let's just say a metaphor, then it's nice to stay for on that theme for a while because you're activating similar concepts versus sending the brain all over the place. I just saw a presentation about three days ago and I was disappointed because first we were seeing some concepts expressed through the notion of transportation. So you see a lot of cars on the road, but then we went to the woods and then we went somewhere else on the water. And then by the time that thing was over, our spreading activation was way too spread and <laughs> too activated. So make sure that as you're pondering your concepts and at some point, perhaps they're difficult to explain and you have to choose a metaphor make sure that you don't go to metaphorical hell because one thing will lead you to another, will lead you to another, but it's nice to still stay within, within the same thematic uh, construct, so to speak, and not make it so hard for your concepts to get through. So let's talk about presentations because in your book, Impossible to Ignore, which we'll get to in a second, you know, a lot of the examples you use are related to presentations. I don't want to trash PowerPoint because it's just a tool. I've seen people do great things in PowerPoint. I've seen people do lousy things in PowerPoint. And there are other tools, Google Slides, et cetera. But we all know that people kind of generically refer to presentations as PowerPoints and their eyes roll and we've all seen that happen. What do people get wrong about presentations? <laughs> I like that. Uh, I like that question because there, there are a few things that they get wrong. There are many things that uh, they get right. Otherwise, uh, you would not be in business. But since we started with this notion of what triggers memories and what you can do at point A to make sure that later on at point B, people remember what you want them to remember. What I'm noticing a lot in, in some business presentations is that, is that um, too many things are placed at random. And if people were just to be a bit more strategic about the sequencing of elements in a presentation, you would take it a little bit easier on people's brains. I'm not advocating to baby somebody's brain, but I am advocating for easier information processing. So if we go back to that other guideline that I was talking about in terms of don't spread them too wide. So if you go with road transportation, stay there for a while, or if you take them to the woods, stay there for a while, or if you take them on water, 
stay there for a while. And then you can switch at some point just to create some variety, but at least be strategic about your, your sequencing. I'm doing um, some research right now on this notion of priming, which means that it is possible to show the brain one stimulus. And as a result, you can influence how the next stimulus is being processed. And the reason why priming is important for business content is because whenever you prime the brain properly, then the next stimulus can be understood a lot faster, a lot easier, and quite often error-free. And those are great attributes for, for business content because who wouldn't want our customers to say, hey, I really like that content because it was easy for me to understand it. I understood it very fast and I think I got it right. And uh, those are, are good key metrics. In fact, when we uh, record the success of presentations, those are some metrics that we use for, uh, for ourselves. And if you aspire those, then getting the brain ready for what's really important to remember is, uh, is critical. That's where priming comes in. It's normal to have reactions because perhaps sometimes people don't think about um, presentations and priming in the same uh, in the same concept. But my practical advice to all of our listeners is to take a record of all these segments that you know will go into your content. Maybe you have a presentation, maybe you have a video, maybe you have a campaign of sorts. Anything in life happens in a sequence, in an order. And you as a communicator can be in charge of how things are sequenced. And just know that how you're placing one element can influence how the next one is being processed. So one slide can influence how the next one is being perceived. I remember a quote from this um, Canadian um, uh, jazz musician, and um, he said that there isn't such a thing as a wrong note. It's a note that follows that di dictates whether the previous one was, was wrong or not. And sometimes people don't remember because they're not ready to remember something. So as you're looking at your content, determine what's important for people to take away and then step back and wonder what happens right before those moments. Are people even ready to pay attention to your content, which is then a precursor to, uh, to memory? And if they're not, perhaps before those moments, you can do something differently, like insert a small story, um, ask a question, uh, get the brain to be alert by interacting with something. Then it's not those moments necessarily that you want them to remember, it's the moments after that that are critical to, uh, to their memory. What about the balance of imagery and text in a presentation? Because I have seen presentations where people go way big on the images and those who have to approve them say, no, no, there's not enough text. People, if people brought this home, downloaded it, looked at it later, they wouldn't remember anything. They wouldn't understand anything. On the other hand, if there's too much text, especially if you're gonna read that text as you go through the presentation, yeah, that's a pet peeve of mine. That doesn't, that doesn't really work either. So it, it seems like you wanna strike a balance between the two. I like your, uh, your reaction. And um, here are some research studies that I've done recently just on that, uh, on that topic, because a similar question as I was, as I was asking also is, uh, how much stock photography can you get away with? How many cliches? <laughs> How much can you afford? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> because when you're mentioning that you're noticing that there's a lot of imagery in some business content, we step back and we ask, it's not just how many images, but what kind of images? And what's the um, teaching value of those images? Because what we were noticing in, in our research was this, if you had some functional images, meaning that they would teach you a concept and that concept was also, also related to the text, 
then it wasn't so much that people were spending more time on the images. They were actually more focused on the text, which is where you probably wanted them to be. At least in that case, this was a, a neuroscience study we were doing on uh, ebooks. Everybody's sending ebooks out. So the practical guideline that um, we can all use from that study is that as you're looking at the amount of images, count how many you have, but also ask, are they used for decoration? Or are they used to teach something and they're highly related to, uh, to the text? It's not wrong to use images for decoration. So in that study, we were observing that 10 to 20% of the entire artifact, so that entire ebook, you could indeed get away with some decorative and cliche images because the brain finds comfort in the cliche. A cliche images, uh, image like uh, showing some uh, globe with some interconnected dots. Have you seen those images? Or right. Tell me some of your pet peeves for uh, for cliche images. I know that I have a few of mine. Ah, uh, oh boy. There's the there's the one where the people are huddled over looking at the computer, and you have like every gender and race represented <laughs> yes. in it. And well, first of all, it hasn't worked for the past year because those people are way too close together. So <laughs> I know you're you're right to make that observation because lately we've been even informing our designers to stay away from group related pictures, people shaking hands, which used to be very popular. Now I oh, yeah. <laughs> that was year. like that was the that was the anything you were talking about about like a business deal, closing a deal, it's like the handshake, right? Yes, yes, yes. And lots of people in a room looking mesmerized at a whiteboard. Yeah, so <laughs> the virus or no virus in mind, those pictures work because the brain could understand them very quickly. And you did not necessarily have to expend a lot of extra cognitive energy to get what's going on. If you saw two people shaking hands, it's like, okay, I got it. But as a result though, what you may not get is extra attention on the text. Whereas when the image is a bit more functional, then that prompts you to, uh, to believe that perhaps the text is also offering something of value. So 10 to 20%, you can go um, cognitively lazy, so to speak. Then the rest, make sure that they're more functional. But I like what you're saying in terms of, at some point, is there some merit to one versus another text versus image? And I want to ease the pressure for all of our listeners in the sense of, you don't always have to give the brain amazing pictures to, uh, to pick from or focus on. You can get away with a lot of text as long as that text helps the brain build mental pictures. So for example, we were talking about um, a while back about this notion of uh, blockchain. Blockchain is such an abstract concept to the point where not that many people even understand or know what it means. <laughs> so if right. you ask people to define it, it's not the easiest. So I remember asking someone for a, for a definition and when he said blockchain is like the notary of the internet, now that starts building somewhat of a mental picture as to what that may be. Um, later I found, um, even I thought at the time, I understand it may not be necessarily the most accurate definition, but at least notice what it does to your brain right now as you're listening. Somebody said, look at blockchain as the lockbox that a realtor would have on a house. It helps you enter a space safely and it helps you exit a space safely. So see right, right now, I don't have to show you a PowerPoint slide I didn't have to go to iStock photo and download a picture after I would have typed in blockchain and very likely gotten some um, interconnected dots out coming out of an iPad with somebody touching the uh, the tablet. Have you seen that? <laughs> yeah, and in a chain. I was as you're talking, I'm thinking I can go to Google and do an image search on blockchain. And I guarantee I see a chain. 
yeah, there you go. So uh, the takeaway from uh, from this is that if you're thinking about pictures versus text, don't worry so much about which one could be more powerful. The brain needs visuals in some form anyway, period. Um, so you can then ask the question, where is that visual coming from? And quite often it can come from text, as long as you're using words that help the brain build mental pictures. And when you know something that is very concrete about your, your concepts, such as the lockbox, the realtor, the house, then look for those images and search like that versus searching just for the abstract concept initially, because that will only give you, you'll, you'll search for an abstract concept and you'll get a generic picture. And the combination of the two is where memories go to die. I want to touch on storytelling. I, I've been diving into the subject of storytelling for business over the past few months. And then I was very fortunate in that I got to the point in your book about storytelling right before our Demand Fest virtual event that we did. And I remember parts of your book. I noticed this as I was reading because it's it's an interesting situation to be in. I'm reading a book about you know content that sticks that you can remember. And I find myself remembering parts of the book specifically because of the stories you used. And I can sit here weeks after I started the book and there was the guy who was running up the mountain. There's the story of you in the red coat in the line at the store in Romania. And I remember those stories and I tie them to that part in the book and I'm kind of reading the book and going, hey, this kind of works. So can, can we get some storytelling tips? Yes, there's a, a reason why you still remember some of those stories and um, this can turn into something practical for, uh, for our listeners. One of the reasons we remember stories is because often they ignite our senses and things are placed in a very uh, concrete and quite often physical context. So for example, these days I'm um, hooked on uh, the Golden Girls. Do you know that, uh, that show where these uh, older women uh, share a house somewhere in Florida and they uh, yep. live their golden years? And um, the, one of the most adorable is uh, Sophia, the oldest in the show is portrayed to be in her eighties. And um, Sophia's stories always start like this. Picture it, it's 1929, it's Sicily and a poor peasant girl is walking down the street. So instantly she takes our brain and puts it in a visual spot in a highly physical context. So I know that it's Sicily. I know that it's a street. I can picture the, the poor peasant girl. And um, some business content by contrast does not do this. If we return to the blockchain conversation and um, if we think, well, actually just these days I'm, um, I'm teaching that storytelling class at uh, Stanford. And there's this um, software engineer who says, I'm talking about the software that's about solving the permissions for our customers. So apparently some admin rights that you can give to some uh, people who have access to the software or not. And she uses phrases like, we are not able to sustainably build new solutions on our existing architecture since doing so continues to add complexity and risk. <laughs> now, as you're listening to these words, you may listen to them right now but not necessarily remember them 48 hours because they have a lot of abstract features. For example, you're talking about permissions, like what is a permission? You're talking about building something sustainably. What, what does your brain see when you hear that phrase? You're talking about new solutions. Everybody talks about new solutions right now, but what do you picture? She talks about an architecture, but that's not an actual architecture you see in real life. It's software architecture, complexity, risk. 
those are abstract terms. So the brain at some point needs something to be mobilized by. And often that comes from something that is concrete and, uh, and specific. So I was pushing her to find something. In this case, it would have to be a metaphor since you're talking about so many abstract terms. And then this is what uh, she wrote. Let me see if I can find her uh, message. She says, our existing implementation of permissions is not flexible. Some functionality is available only for admins and not for users with different roles. If you can imagine the family that has a house and only one person can get a key to the door, it's not uh -huh. enough for the other family members, right? So our new model will allow us to get a new key to the family member by request. So you see now that she has brought us into the family and we can picture only one member having a key and we can picture how it's unfair to the other family members. But now it says that with this new solution, people can get a new key on request. Now that's a little bit easier to, uh, to handle. So the advice that I have for all of our listeners is if they want to become better at storyteller, storytelling, one of the uh, skills is to make sure that you place the, the brain in a visual spot. And often you do that by igniting the senses and describing a context in which your solutions live. So I love that you use the Golden Girls example because in my Demand Fest session, I started out with the story and it took place in Italy. I'm right there with the Stella <laughs> Getty. Nice. You're, you're on your way, picture it. <laughs> That's right. And, and I will say that the, the tactic that I used that, like I said, I read this like two days before in your book was a personal story. And it was easy. And I think one of the things you said in the book is it's easy to remember a personal story because you were there. It's like your story, it's your experience. And it's true. I didn't have to like write it down. I wasn't worried about every little detail. I knew the important parts of the point I wanted to make. I didn't need to overdo it with details. I didn't need to write it down. I didn't need to bullet it out. I could just tell the story because it's already, it's in my brain. The trip was 20 years ago, but it's still there. So it was good practical advice. Thank you. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so, so glad to hear. And um, I'm glad that you're reminding us to uh, search first in our personal repository. Uh, all of us come with so, so many stories at some point. And um, if that uh, does not match a concept you want to bring to life, then you can borrow from people that you know stories. And if that doesn't uh, pan out, then you can go even wider to some stories that are happening to people you don't know, but you have heard about. And if that doesn't pan out, then you can go smaller in the sense of finding some, at least some metaphors or uh, some fragments of stories, like this uh, woman was comparing her new software solution with giving a key to a new family member. And um, that can still work. Obviously it won't come across as a fully fledged story because a fully formed story would have many more elements other than just invoking some senses and context. You can't claim a story, for example, unless you have some action across time. After we're brought to Sicily, 1929, something will happen eventually to Sophia that we learned about. So some things will, uh, will advance. We also still have some cognitive aspects. Of course, there's the uh, emotional aspect of a, of a story, but even a fragment will do in uh, compared to a just simply abstract concepts. So Impossible to Ignore was published in 2016. We're talking in April of 2021, so five years. If you were writing the book now or if you were updating it, what might you add, remove, or maybe change? And that's whether it's based on research you've done since then or just pivot to everybody doing presentations electronically over the past year plus at this point. What would you change? Linking to this notion of storytelling, since we were just talking about that, um, I've been updating that model to uh, add not only just emotions, 
but also alludes to people's um, motivations and, uh, and what they consider rewarding or valuable. And if we're talking about uh, new neuroscience research, there are some that's um, really occupying my mind right now. And I think our, our viewers would find it valuable, which is this distinction between liking something and wanting something. Because you can perhaps think for your own situation, can you think of something that you want, but once you get it, you don't necessarily like it all that much. Or the other way around, you like something, but perhaps you don't necessarily have the motivation to go get it. So this notion of pleasure and desire and putting effort into what you like is important for all of us to understand. Uh, and, and why is that? First of all, we're recognizing from a neuroscience perspective that liking and wanting are processed in the brain differently. And if we understand that, and if we are humbled by the fact that they're not always coupled in the sense that what you like, you will also want and, uh, and go get. And also once you got something, you will continue liking it. Quite often those are decoupled. And the danger for all of us in business is that you may give customers something that they like, at least initially, but they don't necessarily have the motivation to go get it. That's huge because how often do you spend time, for instance, polishing that presentation you're talking about, or how often you create just a perfect website or the perfect blog or an event like you're, you're talking about. And it's very pleasant in the moment. People will attend and they will say, this was a time well spent and they will have joined your website and they will have seen your app and they will have downloaded the trial. And it's like, 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 but at some point, do they go get it? Do they go pay for it? Do they sign the contract? Do they make the decision? So when that answer is no, that means the liking and the wanting are, are two separate concepts. To get them coupled again, then we ask the question, how is it that the brain go gets something? And that's when we mentioned the, the notion of reward and uh, thinking about people's motivations and what they find valuable because the brain will go exert energy if the trip is worthwhile. They will move towards you if the reward is worthwhile. So the practical takeaway for all of us is to always ask, what is the reward that I'm offering as people are listening to this, as they're watching, as they're downloading this ebook? Is the reward worthwhile? And the more often that the answer is yes, then the more liking and wanting are going to uh, to go together. I feel like the concept of liking things has been sort of cheapened by social media and the like, the cheap, easy like. I'm, I'm involved in a nonprofit. We were doing something on the on the Facebook group. Two dozen people liked it because that's yes. easy, but the execution of doing what we wanted them to do was not nearly as popular as hitting that like button. You are right on to remind us that we should not be lured by the amount of likes. We should be lured by likes plus decisions to buy or decision to follow or decision to believe in an idea. Likes and social media shares are terrible KPIs for marketers because <laughs> they're so easy. And I think it's like 80 to 85% of content that's shared on social media was never read by the person who shared. At least initially. What I'm, what I'm surprised by is sometimes we'll do, a, we'll do some neuroscientific studies. And remember how I said we're using the ECG, which then gets uh, to see what the, what the heart is doing. And that's when we notice this combination of valence in the sense of does the brain enjoy the experience and also how alert it is and the wake in the moment. And often we recognize that people are likely to make a decision in the favor of a stimulus, even though they don't like it. 
at least not at first. So that's why you're so right to uh, examine this notion of, of liking because it may not be the most important metric, at least not at first. Obviously, ultimately, we want customers who desire your product and also like them. That's a good combination. But you shouldn't be disappointed if they're likely to move in the direction and at least at first be a little bit on the fence. Because sometimes even learning something new comes with tension and you may not necessarily enjoy the initial experience. Learning something new initially sucks because it tells your brain that you could not predict what happens next and the brain loves to predict accurately. But in time, you recognize the lesson that has come with that element of surprise and the, and the, and the novelty and you ease into that liking a little bit more. So we're doing a podcast right now. There's a lot of buzz around Clubhouse and I think other social media platforms are gonna be jumping on this audio bandwagon if for no other reason than to keep Clubhouse in its place. Any thoughts on creating compelling audio content? Obviously I've got an interest in this one, so. <laughs> yes, it's, um, it's good to remind ourselves what is it that can attract and sustain attention, especially in the absence of visuals. I mean, here we are recording this and um, staying with the same theme about getting the brain to see an, a successful podcast would then be exactly that, something that enables somebody else's brain to see what you're talking about, even in the absence of physical pictures or uh, some uh, moving action. And um, that's important. It's, it's, uh, it's stay relevant and uh, related to what we're talking about in the sense of pairing abstract concepts with something that is concrete and specific. So imagine this right now. Let's just say that I was trying to convince you to remember this notion that um, it is uh, worthwhile to stand out. That's an abstract concept. It's, it's not something that you can touch. But let's just say that it was important for me to get you to remember that. In order for me to get you to remember an abstract concept, notice what happens to your brain right now as I package it up in something that is more concrete and specific that your brain can see. And uh, there is the, uh, the story that I really enjoy. I think uh, this uh, activist name is uh, Mark Linus. He was so appalled when uh, Dolly was uh, cloned. Do you, do you remember that time yep. you back, the cloning of, uh, of the sheep, Dolly? Yep. He was so appalled, in fact, as a, as a green activist that he conspired with, the, with a few scientists to go and steal Dolly. Now, Dolly was kept at the time in uh, the shed near uh, Edinburgh at the institute where those uh, studies were being uh, carried through. And he somehow managed to make it to the stable with these uh, co-conspirators of, of his. And they get there and they recognize that Dolly is being kept among all these other sheep that look exactly the same. So he had no idea which one was Dolly. So therefore he could not steal her. And all of that to say is that as you're creating your business content, are you hiding Dolly in plain sight? Or are you creating something that indeed can stand out among other things that look exactly alike? By packaging that up, even though we're here in a podcast and an audio format, I'm not showing any PowerPoint slides, but it's a little bit easier to picture somebody going to Edinburgh, somebody going to a shed, somebody seeing a bunch of sheep that look alike and nothing is standing out. And then we can bring that concept of make sure you stand out a little closer to your imagination just because now you can see things. I think as a content creator, one of the things that I have to keep in my mind, and I think a lot of content creators are in the same boat, is I would love 
to fill this podcast with stories and anecdotes and stuff like that. But I also want to keep it to 30 minutes because I know people are busy and have limited attention spans and other things they need to do. And that's a conundrum. It is, meaning that you're thinking that by sharing the stories, you then take a little bit of extra airtime just to bring that one principle to life. Right. right. And um, it's, it's a right observation because then to counteract that, then somebody could say, well, if you only have 30 minutes and pack it as much as you can with all of these conclusions of stories, and maybe people will get to remember those, but that's the risk we run. Because if you had the choice to teach somebody, let's just say five abstract things and just list one after another, after another, after another, and you would have enough time for those versus teaching them only two but they would be so strong because now they're wrapped up in all of the details that are necessary to elaborate and then make those memories possible. Which one would you would you pick? Going through your book, there was a lot of, you know, whether you came out and said or not, there was a lot of balance. You know, you could tell this type of story. You could tell this type of story, the images and the text. The point is just don't do the same thing sort of over and over again. Yeah, a good mixture is, uh, is, is um, definitely optimal. And um, as you're choosing your balance between going a bit more factual and facts, by the way, are still part of story. So it's not like they're two distinct things. Even when you're telling a story, some factual information is uh, important. Like even in Sophia's story, we know that it was 1929. It's a fact. So we don't say that you're either sharing stories or you're sharing facts. Within a story, it is up to you how insistent you want to be on packing it with a lot of facts versus saving some room for some of these more perceptive details that bring us to a context and take us to that street or take us to Italy in general, like uh, you were saying in, uh, in your conference. So for a story or for even fragments of stories, picture yourself being on these ladders Let's just say that you're climbing up the ladder for the facts. And now you're at the top, probably time to switch to something else, such as some perceptive details. Now you've climbed that ladder and I brought some, something that is very concrete and specific for your imagination. It is time to switch again because after a while, even something that is very specific and concrete will feel like a list. Like your shopping list probably has, let's just say a bunch of vegetables and some meat and some desserts. After a while, I'm ready to switch to something that's a bit more abstract. What does this all mean? Perhaps it means cooking something for the family to enjoy together. At some point, we do need a conclusion. So switching up these ladders when we have exhausted one is mandatory in order to get the brain not to just pay attention, but continue to pay attention. All right. There's a question we ask just about everybody who's on B2B Nation. What is the one tool that if we took it away from you, your productivity would just screech to a halt? I'm quite fond of this tool that's called Snagit. Do you know Snagit? I know Snagit. I would just be very hurt if somebody <laughs> took it away from me because every so often I capture things that are important either to exemplify something and here we're staying with the same theme about making something visual. So when you want to make something visual to somebody else's brain, you can give them an example and Snagit helps you capture that. And the more of these snapshots that you capture, if you go back in time, it's almost like reliving some elements that may have been important to you all along or some things that at the time seemed important and now they're so irrelevant. So it's not only a productivity tool, but almost a philosophical tool at some point. Yeah, I mean, you see, you see examples that I'm sure in your case, you see a good slide or a really bad slide and it's like, I need, I need to grab this. 
Dr. Carmen Simon from Corporate Visions. Thanks so much for appearing on B2B Nation. Thank you, everyone. And uh, may you earn a spot in someone's memory in light of all these principles. Thanks again to Dr. Carmen Simon for joining us on this episode of B2B Nation. If you found it useful, remember to share it with a friend and make sure you subscribe to B2B Nation on the podcast platform of your choice so you don't miss an episode. I can't forget to thank Amy Dunn, Sarah Wingate, and Emily Whalen, whose memory and calendar help keep everything here at B2B Nation running smoothly. You might also remember that we have the best podcast theme song in the business, and it's composed by Mnemonics in the Guild. Thanks for listening.